If you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 66, and we're going to read through chapter 23, verse 43. So it's a little bit um, of text, but if you'd like to follow along, that would be fantastic. Luke 22 and 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, They had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. 
And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were, who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for, of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us the grace of wisdom as we look into your word this morning? Would you grant me the ability to speak clearly what your word says? Would you grant all of us hearts uh, prepared for repentance, hearts prepared for obedience? We thank you and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, I want to share with you perhaps one of the lowest moments in my life, I suppose, one of the most regrettable things, I guess, maybe I'll say it that way, that I ever did in middle school. I was in gym class, and it was the end of gym class, and there was a rule in our class that you could not enter the locker room until the appointed time to enter the locker room. There was a particular time then you could go in, you could get changed, you could do whatever you needed to do, and then you'd leave class at the end of class. And so oftentimes when we were done with whatever we were doing, everyone would gather in front of the locker room door and they'd be ready to go inside. And, you know, as middle school students do, you know, we were kind of jockeying for position. You know, we'd always jockey for position who could get into the locker room first, um, even though, you know, it was like three seconds difference if you were at the end of the line from the front of the line. But for some reason to middle school students, you know, middle school boys, it matters. And so this particular day, I had gotten to the front of the line, and I knew that there, you know, you weren't supposed to enter the doorway. And so I'm 
standing there, I'm holding the line back, keeping my position while keeping everyone out of the locker room, because you're not supposed to go in the locker room, keeping myself out of the locker room, right? With some, some effort that I was doing this. And my uh, teacher is sitting on the bleachers uh, over here, but you know the bleachers kind of hang out, and so you can't really see the door so clearly from where she was sitting. And I remember as I'm holding back uh, the line, the teacher is yelling to stay out of the locker room until it's time to go into the locker room. And then she's yelling specifically to me because she knows I'm at the front of the line, Cody, get out of the locker room. And I'm yelling back, I'm not in the locker room. And she's yelling at me, get out of the locker room. And I'm saying, I'm not in the locker room. And then she says, Cody, get over here. And I'm thinking, I've been vying for this spot. I finally got at the front of the line, and now I've got to go over there, and I'm not at the front of the line anymore. I'm going to be the back of the line. So I was a little frustrated. And so I walk over there because I had to, right? And and she starts yelling at me, you know, I know you were going into the locker room. You're supposed to stay out of the locker room. And now I'm upset because here I am trying to obey her rule to you know, with, with all of my classmates, with some physical effort that it takes to do so, and she's telling me that I'm breaking her rule. The injustice, this moment, that she, who can't even see the doorway, would falsely accuse me of breaking her rule when I was the one that was trying to uphold it. Well, after a short back and forth, I was as mad as ever. And the time came to go into the locker room, and so she kind of just shushed me and dismissed me. Just go to the locker room, whatever. It's time to go. Well, I came into the locker room pretty mad, kind of ranting under my breath about the situation. And some of the middle school boys thought it was kind of humorous and they started to laugh and that, you know, encouraged me. And so I started to rant a little bit less under my breath. And it grew to a little bit on the top of my lungs. And things started coming out of my mouth that I would just never repeat today. Like I would be embarrassed that you would even know the kind I, I don't even know that I understood the, the reality, the literal meaning of the things that were coming out of my, you know, 13-year-old mouth. Like as bad as you can think, it may have been worse. And after a couple of minutes, you know, of ranting and everyone laughing and the laughter died down, and I turn to my locker to, you know, change out of my gym clothes. All of a sudden, I hear this. Cody Waterman, get in my office. The male gym teacher had been in his office in the locker room the entire time. He didn't, he didn't want to interrupt me. He just waited for me to finish. And when it got quiet... Then he called me into his office. And I received in-school suspension the rest of that day and all of the next day. 
And uh, that's how it goes. But probably most of all, I was embarrassed when I went into the, the, the I think it was the vice principal that, that day that kind of handled it. And he looked at me, knowing who I was, knowing that I called myself a Christian, and looked at me with these eyes and said, Really? You said that? Really? That's what came out of your mouth? You see, I think we, at least for me, one of the things that I bothers me the most is being falsely accused. And if I did a thing, and I know I did it, even if it was bad, you know, I'll, I'll admit it. I'll take my licks. Look, I said that. I'll take my 10 hours in school suspension. I, I, it's, it's what I got coming. But I hate being accused falsely. And here's the problem for us. False accusation is, is near guaranteed for us who follow Jesus Christ. It is a almost 100% guarantee that if you are following Christ and you are obeying Christ, that at some point you will be falsely accused and probably falsely accused for something when you are actually trying to obey Christ. And you will be accused that, no, you are actually doing something wrong. Last week, we talked about the way in which Satan tries to attack us. And I think this is one of those ways in which Satan tries to prod us into actually destroying our witness. Listen, if Jesus was perfect, and he was, and they and he found himself falsely accused and judged, then why should we assume that anything different would happen to us? You may think to yourself, no, 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 I will, I will live my life so righteously, so wonderfully, so perfectly, that no one could ever falsely accuse me, and yet here we have Jesus, who's truly perfect, falsely accused. How can we avoid this? We can't. But how can we avoid responding to those situations in sinful ways, in ways that are actually sinful? How can we avoid, when we're falsely accused, giving someone the opportunity to rightly accuse us of doing something we ought not to do? Well, I think there are three questions that we can ask ourselves when we're in those situations that will help us when we're falsely accused, we can ask ourselves, who is the judge? Who's the, who is the real judge here? We can ask ourselves, who is the rebel? And we can ask ourselves, who is the condemned? I think these three questions can help us, can help ground us, can help center us back on Christ, back in His truth, and keep us in the midst of false accusation from giving someone reason to actually accuse us.
Who is the judge? Well, we have Jesus here. He's just been arrested. And Luke gives us a summary of the proceedings before the Jewish council, which is where he is first tried. And they ask Jesus, they ask if Jesus claims to be the Christ, you know, not that that's his last name, right? But that does, do you claim to be the Messiah that's prophesied in the Old Testament? And his response is twofold. If he answers them, he knows they won't believe him anyways, because he's already told them and they haven't believed him. He's been preaching it for the last week in the temple. Remember, from the moment he came into Jerusalem a week before his death, all the way until his arrest, he has been going into the temple every single day, preaching and preaching and preaching. So they know, they've heard. If he asks them a question, he knows they'll dodge it. And we've seen that in the book of Luke as well. Where Jesus asks a question, they say, well, we know if we answer this way, the crowds will be against us. If we answer that way, we'll, you know, we'll go against what we say. So we'll just say we don't know. So it's not that Jesus is withholding testimony, not that Jesus is withholding the gospel for them. He's already told them. He's already asked the questions. They've already responded. He knows where they're at. He knows by their actions that they are not actually in pursuit of the truth about Christ, but they have a different purpose. But Still, Jesus actually does respond. He says, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He quotes from Psalm 110. He quotes from Daniel 7, 13 through 14, in which the Son of Man is enthroned and given all power and authority. And the long and the short of it is this, that Jesus is declaring that He will be enthroned. That what is happening right now will inevitably result in his enthronement at the right hand of God. Why does, why does that matter? Because the one who is at the right hand of God has the authority to judge all people. Everything. He has all the power. In other words, they judge Jesus. But Jesus is the judge of everyone. They're trying to produce evidence against Jesus, but they're actually only adding evidence against themselves. Their false accusations are real evidence against them before the throne, before the court of God himself. Next time you are being falsely accused for righteousness, being falsely accused for being a Christian and doing what what Christians do or what God's Word says, when you're being falsely accused for obeying Christ, remember that if that person knows, if they're knowingly accusing you falsely because they stand against righteousness, they will have to give an account for that as well. When Jesus says, you say that I am, their response is this, what further testimony do we need? The problem isn't with those words. The problem is with the intent, right? If their response had been, what further testimony do we need? We found life, then they would be good. They would be where they ought to be. But their response instead is, what further testimony do we need? Put him to death. 
The question here that we have to ask ourselves, and the question we have to ask ourselves in any situation is this, to whom will I answer? To whom will I answer? Will I ultimately answer to them? The person who is accusing me falsely? Will I ultimately answer to the person who's judging me based on their false accusation? Or will I ultimately answer to God himself who knows all things, even my heart, who knows the truth? Who will vindicate me? Who will judge between me and my accuser? Is it this other person standing here? Is it me or them? No, it's none of us. It's God. And God knows. He knows the facts. He knows the intents. He knows everything. So consider if you're on trial, someone comes into the room and tells you, I will be, uh, I'm going to be the judge presiding over your case. There's a difference between asking yourself the question, is this actually the judge? Or saying to him, well, I'll be the judge of that. And the question you have to ask is, is Jesus actually the judge? But what these Jewish leaders were asking is, we'll be the judge of that. It's a very different question. I like how in our catechism question it said, what about faith in Jesus Christ? It's receiving. Oftentimes we talk about, well, I'm going to accept Jesus. But, but, but when we say, I'm going to accept Jesus, what, we're, what we are unintentionally perhaps doing is saying, I get to decide whether Jesus is Jesus. I don't get to decide. I get to discover. I get to receive the reality of it. But my decision doesn't change the fact of the matter. first seeks to discover the truth, but these Jewish leaders presume to be able to decide what the truth is. We don't get to do that. The council jumps on Jesus' comments because they see it as being a political statement, and they know that they cannot kill Jesus. If you didn't know this, the Jewish leaders had no power to actually get someone killed. They needed the Roman officials to approve it. And so they jump on this statement of him being Christ, being the king, and saying, ah, see, look here, he's made the political statement, and now we can bring him before Pilate, we can get him killed. But Jesus' statement, while not being apolitical, is in actuality pre-political. You see, his authority comes before and is above the political powers. It includes and subsumes all of those things. Listen, you answer to different people in your life. You answer, kids, you answer to your parents. It's an authority that God's put over you. You answer to the law, right? To the police, you might have to go to court. You answer to your boss at work. But all of those are all under Christ. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what matters, the judge, is Jesus. And we would do well to remember that in every situation. We do well to ask ourselves, do we live 
like Christ's judgments, supersede everyone else's judgments. And that brings us to the next question. Not only who is the judge, but we need to ask ourselves, who is the rebel? You see, the next morning, they bring these charges before Pilate, um, you know, who is the governing authority in the area. And there are three charges that they present. First, that Jesus is misleading the nation, that he's, that he's uh, uh, leading them away from what they ought to do. And Pilate didn't, you know, he didn't really care about the religious disputes so much. The issue for him was if this way that Jesus is teaching would upset the peace. Pilate's concern was keeping the peace in the area, not disturbing the status quo, because that would make his job harder. The second accusation is that Jesus refused to pay taxes and told others to do the same. Now, you know, this this has been seen as false. We've covered that text. But the general accusation is that he is unsubmissive to the governing authorities, and that he calls others to be unsubmissive to the governing authorities in principle. And then the third thing is this, that Jesus claims to be king. Now, this accusation is actually true, right? But not in the way that the Jewish authorities were accusing him. And so you see different ways that will be accused falsely, just flat-out lies, uh, manipulations of, of what we've actually said, um, all sorts of different things. And I want to pause here to note something. I want, I want you to recognize that no one lived more righteous than Jesus. No one lived more as if God was sovereign than Jesus did. No one lived more for the salvation of souls than Jesus did. No one lived more for the good of human flourishing than Jesus did. And yet, Here he stands. And in a society that was largely opposed to the gospel and where the religious powers paint themselves as righteous, but just go along with others, the one who was working for the most peace for humanity was charged with upsetting the peace. The one who was most submissive to the authority of all authorities was charged with being unsubmissive. The one who was actually the rightful king was charged with insurrection. Listen, if we serve Jesus as king, you should expect that people, even church people, will falsely accuse you at times. We'll probably do so along similar lines as this. However, following Jesus is not simply being a rebel. Following Jesus is not simply bucking against the system, is it? We must work to answer this question in each situation. Who is really a rebel? What is rebellion in the eyes of the true judge? If I've answered the question, who is the judge, then I need to ask myself, what's actually rebellion in his eyes? What would he have us to do? Well, inserted into this story of Jesus before Pilate. We have Jesus before Herod. Pilate, you know, he doesn't want all the responsibility of making such a controversial decision. Jesus is a well-known figure. He's been teaching people. There's been droves of people following him. And, and, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to go well for Pilate's political career if that's all on his shoulders. So he jumps at the chance to put Jesus before Herod to kind of share some of the blame, if you will. And so he sends Jesus over 
to Herod. And Herod is interested in seeing Jesus also, but for his own selfish reasons, right? He's like, I've heard some of the things he's done. Maybe he'll do a miracle or two, you know, get to see something fun. Well, Jesus doesn't really comply with his wishes. He doesn't really resist either. He's just silent. And so Herod mocks Jesus, treats him with contempt, you know, almost trying to kind of poke him into response. Do something. I want to see something. And this raises a question for us. When, when ought we remain silent and when ought we to defend ourselves? And we're accused. When, when is it appropriate to defend ourselves? When is it appropriate? When is it rebellion to God to speak? And when is it rebellion to God to not speak? We know that Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would give them words for defense. We can turn to the book of Acts and we can see Peter defending himself. So we can see John defending himself before uh, people. We can see Paul defending himself as well. Uh, so there are plenty of opportunities for that. But we also see times when Paul um, wants to go into the mob to defend his actions and, and his uh, good friends say, hey, maybe not, maybe not the time for that. Maybe you know, we'll let someone else handle this. You need to go over here. We could turn back to the story of David and David when his son uh, usurps his authority and takes the throne temporarily. And there's a man who begins to curse him as he goes along the way and throws rocks at him and his, uh, his friends, his, his uh, company as he is traveling along, along the way. And, the, and one of the guys says, D- King David, I'll just go over there and chop the guy's head off. David's like, whoa, settle down. You know, who, who's to say that God has not actually sovereignly brought this person out to curse me? And if I'm to be cursed, then there's a lesson to be learned in that. And if that's wrong for him to do that, then God will take care of it. And as we turn forward in the book of Second uh, Samuel, we find that um, God did take care of it. Turned out that Solomon's first, one of Solomon's first actions as king, it was to go and murder all of that man's family, in uh, to settle that account for what he did to his father. You see, there are times in which we are to act in different ways. What are we to do? I had been falsely accused. I knew the teacher was wrong. God knew the teacher was wrong. To this day, I would tell you, I did not put one centimeter of my foot or my hand or any part of my body into that locker room. Not one toenail, okay? But even what I was accused of didn't carry any real consequences. But my response did. And I don't mean 10 hours of ISS. I mean that every teacher, every student in that locker room heard not the truth of God's word coming out of my mouth, not a justified defense of myself that would honor God, but they heard what Satan would have me say. They heard a response that was an offense to God, that did not glorify 
God. It was no witness to love, grace, or patience. It was not even a witness to righteousness and justice. It was an unjust response. My need to prove myself, my innocence in one arena, made me very, very guilty in another. My actions... My actions in that situation were obvious, and we can sit here and we can say, well, of course, don't do that. But listen, in your life, it can come in much more subtle ways, much more subtle ways. We can act very Christian-y with very, very selfish hearts. And so the question we need to really ask ourselves is what action is submission to God, even if it leaves me appearing to be a rebel to others, what is actually submission to God? And I'm not sure I can give you an incredibly clean-cut answer that's just going to work for every single situation you're in, but I think there's two motivations that we can use to test to test ourselves, to test our hearts in these moments that, that I think will make it a little bit more clear for us. At least it will give us a clear conscience before God and free us to simply do our best and trust Him in whatever situation we find ourselves in. The first question is this, will defending myself bear witness to Jesus in His good news? If that is not a motivation, if one of these two things is not a motivation, then you may not actually want to speak. Will defending myself bear witness to Jesus and his good news? It may be that there are times in which defending your actions and your beliefs in a particular situation will actually also be a defense of the gospel and God's word, in which case you may in that situation want to say something. Another motivation that you can check is this. Will defending myself protect Jesus's church his people from false teaching or from sin? Will my defending myself actually protect someone else from evil, right? There may be a time in which defending my words or my actions might help the third party to, to keep them from a lie, to keep them from something that would lead them into sin, in which case defending myself may actually be the right thing to do. But if one of those two things are not our motivation, I have a sneaky suspicion that if you really took the time to examine your heart, that any other motivation for defending yourself is probably selfish. It's probably self-glorifying, not God-glorifying. It's probably your desire to justify yourself in your own eyes rather than being justified in God's eyes. And if that is our motivations, then we put ourselves in rebellion to God. You understand that, that if at the, at the very base of it, our motivation is not God's glory, that whatever we do is sinful then. This is incredibly, it's an incredibly hard thing to resist, right? How can we, in those moments, Resist the temptation to, 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 to justify ourselves, to, to, to defend ourselves, to uh, feel like we need to protect ourselves in those things. Well, I think that the answer is to look to Jesus. The charges were filed and the investigation was done. And what was the verdict? Both Pilate and Herod had the same verdict, didn't they? Did they not? This man's innocent. I've not found him guilty of anything that you've been saying. Certainly not 
guilty of death. But Pilate refuses refuses to be courageous enough to simply let the innocent man go. And he tries to find this loophole of releasing a prisoner, and it, and it totally backfires on him. He thinks, this crowd will not want to release Barabbas, uh, an insurrectionist and a murderer. That's the last thing that they'll want to do. There's no way that they'll do that, and it backfires. Barabbas, Barabbas, who actually is all the things that they claimed Jesus to be. How many times I've heard people say about this story, I, I want to clarify something. There's many times I've heard people say, and I probably said it myself about this story, look, look here, look here, Jesus, the righteous one, the innocent one, takes the punishment, and Barabbas, the sinner, is freed. What a great picture of the gospel. And while it is true that Jesus dies for sinners, and it's true that God's plan in Christ is incredibly merciful, and while I'm very thankful for the ways in which perhaps this one little scene has pointed people to Christ, and if it's played a significant role in your life, I don't mean to disparage it. But, but, I, but, I, but as I look at this passage, I wonder, is that really... Is this really the best picture of the gospel? Is that really what Luke is trying to communicate to us through this story? Or is Luke pointing to something else in the gospel here? Something that would have made sense to his original audience, but maybe has been a little lost on us. Consider, first, there's no sign here that Barabbas is repentant at all. There's no repentance. He just wants his free ticket out of jail. And I think oftentimes we think of what Christ has done to us. Well, he just, Jesus gives, just gives us free tickets out of, out of jail, out of, out of hell. But is that really how the Bible describes salvation? We know that sinners are called to repentance. Repentance and faith in Christ. Second, there's no reason to think that Barabbas is any less criminal upon his release than he was before. In fact, we have a lot of reason to think that he was just as criminal afterwards. In fact, in verse, the emphasis in verse 25 seems to indicate the shock that Luke wants his readers to feel that they would want Jesus dead and would want a murderer to come back and live among them. Seems like Luke wants us to understand that this decision was sort of a cut off your nose to spite your face decision, right? It was a decision that would do more harm to the people. You see, the gospel is not merely just getting us out of the punishment of sins. It's not just merely a get out of jail card. No, what Jesus does is he makes us a new creation. He gives us new life. We no longer have to go on in sin that leads to death. And then I think it's further supported by the very next dialogue that Jesus has as he's on the road to being crucified. Jesus is talking not about how they should, they should mourn him because he's wrongly accused while he's actually saving people, but he tells them how they ought to mourn 
Who? Themselves. For the judgment that's coming on them. For the decisions that are being made right then and there. You see, the story of Barabbas actually points us to the reality that in their zeal to falsely condemn Jesus as a menace to society, they've actually released on themselves a true menace to society. Releasing Barabbas is a glimpse into God's judgment. How God allows these corrupt people, in a sense, to hang themselves by their own actions. And Romans 1 tells us the very... Same thing, that God gives them over to their wickedness. And that is part of God's wrath right here and right now on those whose consciences are seared. God is sovereign over all of this. It's not hopeless. Jesus in this moment does not need to get vengeance right then. He knows that God is handling the situation. He knows, as Proverbs tells us, that the wicked man goes out to set a pit for his neighbor and falls into the pit. God will take care of it. And so we should work towards justice in our world, and we ought to call out injustice when we see it, but we do not have to desperately grasp for it. This is the great freedom we have. You see, oftentimes we talk, we want to kind of shove off God's judgment into some kind of corner of the church and not talk about it because that's not pleasant, but I beg to differ. When you've been wronged, when you've been falsely accused, when someone has done injustice against you, God's judgment is a beautiful thing because it's always righteous, it's always right. They'll always take care of everything. And so you are released to not have to grasp for vengeance, to not have to grasp to bring about justice. Sure, we ought to work for it when we can, but we don't have to be desperate because we know that God is in control. We know that He will bring perfect justice into every situation, even when we're falsely accused. We know that when our government promotes the murder of unborn children, but, but then turns around and raids the home of a loving father who preaches at Planned Parenthood, that we ought to speak out against it, that we ought to love justice in that situation and work for it, but we don't have to lose our minds over it. God will judge. We know that when so-called pastors are hushed on issues like LGBT issues, or, or worse yet, when they tell their congregations that the gospel thing to do is to not make a big deal about stuff like that, rather than offering the truth and hope of God's word to people who are killing themselves physically and spiritually, and on top of that, often condemning those who are actually trying to preach the truth and hope of God's word. We can rest in knowing that these false accusations do not make us rebels to God so long as we do not respond like rebels. Rather, they only serve to prove to those in whom the Spirit is at work who is truly preaching God's Word and who is a false teacher. 
And so all of this leads to this final question, who's the judge, who is really the rebel, and then who is the condemned? It would by earthly, all earthly appearances seem that Jesus stands condemned, but when the women are following him, this battered and beaten Jesus who can't even carry his own cross because he's been mocked and scorned and beaten so severely, severely and they're lamenting for him, Jesus turns to them and he gives that surprising response. He tells them, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. More particularly, weep for those who will be in Jerusalem in the days to come. He has just preached in the temple all week about the reality of God's judgment that is coming on the city. He is, in essence, telling them, if this is what happens to me, if this is what's going to happen to me, an innocent man, green wood that's full of life, what will happen to those who do this to me, the guilty, the dry wood that is ready for the flame? You see, there are two kinds of people. There are those for whom Jesus took this condemnation. And there are Those are the ones who take up their cross and follow Jesus. Those are the ones to whom Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Even as Isaiah 53, 12 says, he gives intercession for the transgressors. To them, Jesus' death means life. And then there are those who condemn Jesus instead. They are those who take up a cross and nail Jesus to it. those who kill life. To them, Jesus' death means judgment. And so the critical question we must ask ourselves is this, who, who is the condemned? The two criminals give us a great illustration. Neither of the men crucified with Jesus were falsely accused. Both of them deserved to be there. Both of them stood guilty. They hung there because they were rightly convicted of their crimes. Both understood that Jesus claimed to be Christ. But the first mocked Jesus. If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. His plea for salvation was not a genuine faith in Jesus as Christ. Although he hung just like Jesus did, he tried to stand in judgment over Jesus, even as he was dying on a cross. There are those who know their path leads to death and yet remain indignant to Jesus. They refuse to believe. Sadly, but truly that it can be the case. But the second, the second thief, the second criminal, who was just as guilty as the first, took a different approach. First of all, he recognized his own sinfulness. He declared, we deserve to be here. I deserve to be here. I deserve to be condemned. Second, he recognized Jesus for who he was and and that he was falsely accused. Finally, in faith, he requested of Jesus to be remembered by him. Think about that. 
what a strange question to ask. What a strange question to ask is you're dying of a man who's dying and who will most likely die before you. Remember me. You would never, you, you might ask, if you believe that Jesus was just a man, you might ask, well, just save yourself and save us. But, but unless you believe that Jesus truly was the Christ, you would never ask, remember me. Because why would it matter? What good would it do? In his dying moments, hanging next to Jesus, he doesn't say, get me off this cross. He says, I deserve this cross. But you don't. Will you remember me? Would you be gracious to me? Would you show me mercy that I don't deserve? He, this thief, displays repentance and faith. This thief, not Barabbas, illustrates the gospel at work, illustrates the mercy and the grace and the loving kindness of our Savior. This thief says, I am a sinner, Jesus is king, and he is the only one who can save me. You all have falsely accused him, but I will rightly call on his name. There is nothing more important than each of us admitting those three truths. I am a sinner. Jesus is king. He's the only one who can save me. Who's the real judge? Who's the real rebel? And who is condemned? Listen, if you're already a Christian, I think I think there's a bit more here for us. We may be falsely accused at times. We will be, and we might be tempted to bend or to wiggle out or, or to self-justify, or we might complain to God that, that we have to go through such an ordeal. Why would you do this to me? When that happens, we ought to remember first that Jesus is the true and righteous judge, and He will make all things right. We ought to remember that without Christ, we rightly stand condemned before the Father as rebels. That's who we really are outside of Christ. And finally, we ought to remember that Christ was wrongly condemned for us. That even as rebels, we might be judged worthy to stand before Him.